The views and opinions expressed in this podcast may be triggering and don't necessarily reflect the views of myself or Blue Matter Project. Please note that I'm not a licensed therapist or a doctor, and all opinions of our guests are for informational purposes and should not be considered medical advice. For any questions about your own health, please consult a medical professional. Hey everyone, welcome back to the Mindful Matters podcast. My name is Elaine Clark. Thank you so much for tuning in this week. You know that I love sitting down with people who are adding meaning and purpose into the world and who have an incredible presence. And my guest today is one of those people. We're talking about something that I've been thinking about for a while, and it's because it's something that can be really misunderstood and misused, but also because of how challenging it can be to navigate in relationships. My guest today is Wendy Bahari, and we're talking all about the topic of narcissism. Wendy is the author of an international best-selling book called Disarming the Narcissist, Surviving and Thriving with the Self-Absorbed. And this book has been translated in 15 languages, and the third edition was recently released. With over 25 years of professional experience and advanced level certifications, Wendy is the founder and director of the Cognitive Therapy Center of New Jersey and the Schema Therapy Institutes. And she's been treating clients, training professionals, and supervising psychotherapists for more than 20 years. Wendy Bahari, thank you for being here. I'm thrilled to have you on the show. Well, thank you, Elaine. It's my pleasure to be here with you. Thanks for asking me. You are the author of the international best-selling book, Disarming the Narcissist. And this book is really well done for anyone who has been in a relationship with or is currently in a relationship with a narcissist. I think this book is honestly such a gem. It's been translated in 15 languages and you now have the the third edition coming out. And it's a very practical step-by-step communication guide. So before we dive into the topic today of narcissism, I'm so curious, what was the inspiration behind this book and and why did you feel so compelled to share this understanding and these tools? Mm. Well, first of all, thank you for mentioning the book. I appreciate that. And, you know, I wrote the first edition of this book some time ago when there was There were very few resources for the general reader on the topic of narcissism. It was still a word that essentially was limited to the lexicon of professionals. And so, I mean, now it's it's practically, you know, a word that bounces off of everyone's kitchen table every day of the week. It's become much more popularized due to celebrities, politics, sports figures, you name it, et cetera. And a lot of just a lot of good reading material. To highlight, there's a, also a lot of myths around what it is, what it isn't, and what we can do about it. But I was mostly inspired to write this book because I was treating narcissistic men. I've been doing that for 30 years, mostly men, some women, and working with partners, working with partners, ex-partners, family members, and just the general public, people dealing with narcissists. And what I was hearing from many partners were you know messages of great despair and heartbreak but also wishes to see what was possible you know what can be done is there hope is there a chance and so i wrote the book you know three times and in this third edition we talk a lot more about 
the highs and lows, the, the possibilities for change and what it takes when change does happen and can it be sustainable, and also the perils of narcissism when it's time to exit, how to do that thoughtfully and to, to care for yourself and to heal. And I also, you know, have added pieces on a very hot topic, which is now dealing with the hypersexuality of narcissism in some cases and the issues of betrayal trauma that partners face. Mm -hmm. And I'm really looking forward to unpacking some of that today in our conversation. And I, I like what you said there at the beginning, you were saying that, you know, narcissism, it's, it's a bit of a buzzword nowadays, especially in social media, it can definitely be misused and misunderstood. So I feel it's important for us to, uh, to unpack that to, to talk about what narcissism really is. Mm -hmm. What is a narcissist? Well, the formal diagnosis, as many of my colleagues already know, is narcissistic personality disorder, which you know basically requires a certain set of criteria or symptoms, if you will, in order to justify a diagnosis like that. I'm going to mention some of these traits, or actually all of them, but when we think of, in terms of a narcissist or the term narcissism, which is not a formal diagnosis, we're talking about traits in a personality that happen along a spectrum from the very mild, maybe annoying show off type to the more severe, which includes perhaps the show off and the charmer, but also someone who can be more volatile, more aggressive, more abusive. And so we look at the spectrum in terms of the number of traits, the degree of intensity, escalations, and even danger at the higher end of the spectrum. But you're talking about someone who is rather super self-absorbed. Um, the, the key phrase or hallmark issue might be their level of entitlement, which differentiates them from most other people who may carry similar types of traits, but the narcissist feels quite entitled to do as they please, to have what they want when they want it. The rules don't apply to me. I'm special. I'm superior. So there's a, elements of control, of devaluing, of demeaning, of competing. They can also be incredibly charming and solicitous and heroes and, you know, superpowers. Um, which can be misleading uh, when you're feeling as if this is someone who is just purely generous of heart, when in fact there's a lot of ego invested in all of the giving. Um, so what you're likely to see, though, in kind of a nutshell, is someone who is incredibly self-absorbed. And, and even uh, nowadays, we're seeing more popularly this split between what they're calling the overt narcissist and the covert narcissist. And there's been some research done on this, which is interesting. And covert narcissism means same traits might apply. It doesn't mean they're softer or quieter necessarily, although they might be. It means that this narcissistic type of person shows up more as I'm the victim. I'm the, I call them the super sufferers in my book because it's still all about them. And it's another way of getting attention and approval and winning the favor of others, but through their suffering, through their victimization, nobody understands me, nobody could, because I have extraordinary burdens, unlike any other human, right? Mm -hmm. So it's always about this sort of extraordinariness, at times perfectionism, these high unrelenting standards, this kind of drilling, demanding internal critic. 
and so much emphasis on performance and achievement over connection and intimacy. And I think for the most part, I think it's men that are often labeled and accused as narcissists in our modern culture. And it's popularized that women will automatically label men as narcissists. But I think it's important to note that women can also be narcissists as well. Oh, gosh, yes. I mean, there are plenty of divas out there who can give their male counterparts a run. So, yes, there are women who will share very similar traits of overt narcissism. And there are, you know, mostly you're, you're going to see women show up in the more covert form mm. so that more more vulnerability. But in that way that I was describing this kind of extraordinary sufferer, I'm not poking fun when I say that I'm saying that with, you know, great compassion for what I know is a, a deep amount of impairment and wounding that has happened in their early life. But yeah, it's coming from both sides. I guess I forgot to mention that two other pretty outstanding features that we also read about in popular press and hear about often on social media is the lack of empathy, the lack of remorse, the lack of accountability. And it's true. I mean, these are pretty strong features when you're talking about issues of narcissism. Empathy is something I want to talk about uh, in depth today because there, mm -hmm. there's, I think it takes a tremendous amount of empathy to understand a narcissist. And empathy is not sympathy. We're not making excuses for narcissists. We're not feeling sorry for them. Right. But we're just acknowledging that at one point, this person was young and influenced by their environment. And they are this way as a means of coping in the world. And I think that takes a lot of empathy. Mm. And yeah, you, you said it beautifully. And that's true. I mean, I think that anyone who knows me knows my work knows that I'm a bit of an empathy junkie. I, I do think that empathy is the golden nugget or the golden ticket. And I do, when I say that, what I mean is that the more we understand, because empathy is about understanding, as you just said, Elaine, it's not feeling sorry for them. It's not sympathy. It's not compassion, even. It's understanding in that deep internal skin felt way where you're seeing the story of someone who is wounded, who is impaired, who has developed or constructed these narcissistic coping modes as a way of living in the universe. And they do it well. And we all have modes for coping, but these are the narcissistic modes. Again, it's not an excuse for them. You take the environment, you take their temperament or biological makeup, you combine that and you get a person who for a number of different reasons will develop these particular coping styles. And in some ways it serves them well, particularly professionally. In other ways, it is the, you know, it's the abyss of their relationships uh, because they don't know how to be in interpersonal relationships in an intimate, emotional, vulnerable way, very successfully or effectively, which is what often drives them to treatment, not voluntarily, but drives them to treatment because someone has told them to come to treatment. But I think empathy is what can liberate us. The more we know, right, the more we get it, the more we see it, the more we understand it, the less we are personalizing it, owning it, blaming ourselves, which is what happens over time. You know, narcissists, you know, this term gaslighting that's out there. Narcissists will try to twist your reality, try to distort the truth all about trying to you know keep themselves sort of free from that toxic shame that lives at the core of their underworld experiences and so they will put that on you 
And over time, many people will, you know, begin to question and doubt themselves and, and own it. So the more you can understand this profile, the better the chances of emancipating yourself from all of that, you know, extra weary energy that goes into uh, trying to figure yourself out or figuring out how to perf perfect yourself in the spirit of staying connected to a narcissist. Right. I can really see the importance of educating ourselves to understand what we're dealing with. And I think empathy is being able to say, I feel you, I get why you're acting this way, but this is not my responsibility. Yes. Um, and as you, you, know. you just gave a perfect example of what we call in schema therapy, which is the model that informs my work of what we call empathic confrontation. So for my colleagues who are listening, they may be familiar with this strategy as well, that empathic confrontation, especially with someone who has narcissistic issues, will draw their attention a little bit closer. You might mitigate some of that competitiveness, that defensiveness, that bullying attack that can show up in the treatment room simply by saying, look, I know it's not your fault. I know you didn't do this on purpose, right? I'm not saying that you learned this because of X, Y, Z, but, but here's the confrontation. It is your responsibility to make yeah. the difference, to change it if you want to, or it is hurtful when you say things, or it's not an apology when you state it that way. Yeah, I really like that. That's great. And I think many of us can come up with an image of what a narcissist looks like. But I do believe that it takes being in relationship with one to really develop a deep understanding of it and the complexities of it and, you know, the internal conflicts that arise in the relational dynamic. So I want to spend some time talking about what it's like being in relationship with a narcissist. It is so incredibly complicated. And I think that there's a word that I've heard several times from clients who are in relationships with narcissists, or they were, and I think it captures it. It captures the sort of the essence of that feeling, and that's called erased. I feel erased. Right. I feel as if I am basically acting as a prop, i.e. a mirror, a reflector, um, a supplicant of some type, but I am the one who is basically there to provide the supply that the ego needs in the narcissist, you know, to be agreeable, to be the audience, to be the one who provides the adulation, who does not create conflict, does not disagree, does not share differential opinions. So I feel erased, you know, because basically you can't have an authentic identity with a narcissist unless, in fact, you're lucky enough that all points agree. Mm, that's powerful. Yeah. On your website, uh, disarmingthenarcissist.com and in the book, you have some information about typical traits a narcissist will display. Let's unpack some of those traits. Tell us a little bit more about some of the signs to look out for that can help identify if we're in relationship with a narcissist. Well, I'll go back to one of the key ones, which is this sense of entitlement. And I think I, I say that because you know, when, you, when you're dealing with problems in a relationship, you can reach points where someone who has had a transgression, they, there's an infidelity or there's a betrayal of some type, some violation. The partner who has perpetrated that, who has, who has offended the other, if they're not narcissistic, it's a little bit easier to get to a place of remorse and ownership and accountability. 
so that there may be just a more accelerated chance for the couple to begin to reestablish some sense of trust or at least to to come to some conclusions if they're if they are deciding that they want to uh, that they can't make it, they're separating, and they want to sort of excavate and figure out what went wrong and how they arrived at this place. But when you have a narcissist in any of these situations, whether it's um, being critical, raising their voice, shutting down and disconnecting, um, violating a trust, betraying, what you're coming up against most of the time is a sense of entitlement. I'm entitled to do that because, because I'm special, because I work hard, because I'm, I work harder than anybody else, because you don't take care of yourself, because you don't attend to me well, because you drive me crazy, because you're misunderstanding, you didn't hear it right. So there's, there's this kind of uh, movement from denial to dismissal to demeaning, devaluing language. Um, you sort of watch this flow. So entitlement is really a chief issue in relationships that add to the complexity when it comes to trying to bring about change, trying to restore trust, trying to cultivate an environment where, you know, the, the individual who has been um, violated can feel safe again. Mm -hmm. um, other things like control and, um, their, their, their inability to be empathic. I mean, I'd like to say something about that because it's true that narcissists are not really good at expressing empathy only under really limited conditions. And part of that is because most of them have come from an early life experience where they really weren't given that kind of unconditional love, you know, where you're just loved for your precious little self. Mm -hmm. the sense of growing into your identity, knowing yourself. Most of them, not all, but most of them will have felt that their identity was imposed upon them, it was decided for them, that nothing less than the best would have been accepted or tolerated. And so it's all about doing, 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 and doing it at the highest level of achievement. And that doesn't mean that they're all superstar professionals. They're not. You can find narcissism in all walks of life. But you know they'll be the highest in their rank, whatever that rank might be. And it can even just be around being right. You know, they can't be wrong because what they carry underneath is this just great level of shame. And yes, indeed, a sense of defectiveness. Hard to believe, you know, these masters of the universe, these larger than life people filled with bluster that underneath is this insecure, you right. know, feeling defective kind of soul. But it's true. So there's a lot of, there's an incapacity to say, you know, Elaine, I, I know it must have felt really terrible when I raised my voice. Well, they can't do that because what gets in the way, what stands in the way is this sense of being the bad guy. Right. I can't tolerate being the bad guy, so it's going to have to land on you. Right. They can't tolerate the accountability, so they go right into the denial, exactly. the defending, the blaming, the devaluing, all of that. Yeah. And there's this very sort of fragile person on the inside, someone who's sensitive, impulsive, you know, without good guidelines to deal with discomfort. And um, it's really interesting, actually, when you when we pause to actually reflect on what's really happening, I think, I think one of the hardest parts about being uh, in relationship with a narcissist is that you get swept up and taken away 
by uh, by these behaviors. And then, it, like you were saying, feeling erased. I think that that's I've never heard that before, but that's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's, that's the term that I've heard, and I, I I mean, it's quite sad to think about it and to think about the implications of that, but. I do think it really captures it well for someone who's in relationship with a narcissist. And, you know, again, I just to go back to the empathy for a moment, it, you know, there's this state, you know, all over the internet, you're going to find things like run, get out, they are Satan, they are devils, they are demons, they are incapable of empathy or remorse. And I mean, this is just really, it's hard to see, you know, being someone who has treated narcissistic individuals for many, many years, and even those, many of them at the very severe end of the spectrum, and no, they don't all get better. And sadly, most of them will not see it through because things will change, the leverage will drop, um, they will find someone else to distract them and, and create a stimulating experience and move on. But many will, many are capable of developing that capacity. And there are ways of assessing who's likely to be able to make a meaningful change and who isn't. Um, we've had enough time of sort of watching and doing this to, to make some fairly reasonable predictions about that. How do you support those who are in relationship with a narcissist? Like, how do you empower them to safely leave the abusive situation or to stay and to work through it? Like, I imagine a big part of this is working with them to establish healthy boundaries and end the cycle of self-blame and self-shame and self-sacrificing choices. Uh, tell us more. Well, it has to start when I work with partners or people who are in close proximity with a narcissist, it has to start with really sturdying oneself. So that means um, finding a voice, right? Giving voice to the voiceless, as I like to say. So breaking that silence, becoming a good self-advocate, dispensing with all the exhausting anger, because for so many people who are listening to this, they will know that the only times they feel strong, really strong, is when they're angry. Right. And anger can be this kind of false sense of strength. And, and, and yeah, it does feel good when you can be like, this is not fair, and it's not right, and it's not just. And we feel strong in those moments, but it's exhausting to continue to have to hold up that much energy being angry. We don't need to be angry. We just need to be sure, certain. We need to know our rights. We need to know the limits. We need to understand this individual who is wounded, who's constructed these ways of coping that are unacceptable, intolerable, but that it's their stuff. This mm -hmm. is not about me. This is about the narcissist and the effect on me. And it's a lot of teaching them what I call how to change the choreography. You're not, we have to stop the dance. You have to stop engaging the dance. It's learning how to, once there's a sturdiness, how to craft new language that allows one to speak in a way to the narcissist in simple, simple language that can just be, I'm not doing this. You know, I'm not doing this. I know this is not where we usually go. We end up in the tirade and, and we're back and forth and it gets ugly and we go to the dark side, but I'm not going to the dark side. So I'm going to step away now in the spirit of protecting any possibility of healing this relationship if they're still in it. Um, and I'll come back to it when we can talk about this respectfully. There's a lot of we language which can feel unfair to a partner who is not responsible for the escalations. 
but the we language will make it more possible for the narcissist to perhaps engage more effectively. And at the very least, because this isn't about changing the narcissist in your life, you can't do that. That requires professional help. You might have some influence over what path they take, but you're not going to change that personality all by yourself. What you can change is your own position in that relationship. You can change the way you hold yourself. You can change that understanding or misunderstanding of your own rights and needs. And I like to say, you know, whether you stay or you go, I'll stand by you, but I am going to be really honest coming from my own perhaps bias, but I'm going to be honest if I feel like the choice you're making is coming out of a default fear of, say, abandonment or I'm not worthy or who's going to want me or I'll be alone for the rest of my life. No one will ever care for me. If it's coming from some what we say schema driven place, something old within yourself, hmm, that's kind of sad to me, right? And I want it to be sad to the person I'm working with. I want them to really arrive at a place where they're standing on a sturdy platform and they're looking at their life and their relationship and saying either I choose you or I don't choose you, or I choose you under these conditions. Um, get help, right? You don't get help, I'm, I can't choose you. But that it's really a choice and it's not a default state. You know, when you asked about, you know, writing this book and what inspired me, there's a lot of people out there, particularly women, who are doing their best to try to protect their children. And they happen to be living with a narcissist who happens to be the father of those children. And it's not so easy to just get up and leave when you have someone who, you know, doesn't believe in seatbelts or might drink and drive because, you know, they're stronger and better and more resilient than everybody else. You know, they're breaking rules. They're not attending to the, their children's safety and welfare. Not true of all narcissistic fathers, but true of many. And so we have to be careful not to judge someone who chooses to stay. Sometimes it's out of, you know, trying to protect one's children or protect oneself or protect one's financial security for a period of time. Yeah. And I think that really speaks to the complexity here. Yes. Yeah. Wendy, you have co-authored several chapters and articles on schema therapy and cognitive therapy. I'm really interested in schema therapy and how we can become under certain conditions when our life themes have become triggered. Let's unpack this for the listener. This is really interesting to me. Yeah, schema therapy is a model that was founded by Dr. Jeffrey Young uh, in New York City. And it, he was actually the one of the lead researchers in Dr. Aaron Beck's work on cognitive therapy for depression. And what Jeff Young began to discover was that you know, CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, which is a, a beautiful science-informed, evidence-based model, um, that it wasn't stretching far enough back then in the 80s, early 90s, to reach towards these very complex personality types and resolve some of those deeper issues. And so he started looking at deeply entrenched core schemas, if you will, the term meaning um, a life theme, more than a belief, more than emotion, more than a behavior, but all three pretty much woven together along with one's biological temperament. So schemas, um, we have 18 early maladaptive schemas. All humans typically have some schemas in their background based on early experiences and unmet emotional needs. 
And when they get triggered, you know, smells like, sounds like, looks like, tastes like, there's so many moments in our lives where we are picking up something, we're picking up something through a filter. It can even be just a, a time of the year. But more specifically, you're in the throes of a relationship or in the company of someone who is devaluing and critical. And if you know something about this from your early life and you've been taught to believe that, you know, you really don't have any worth or value, you're not very lovable. Well, this just sounds like the chorus that is quite familiar. So we would call this an activating condition, one that brings that old life experience and that schema, that belief that lives inside with strong emotional intensity right to the foreground. So it's it's all about, you know, what did we learn in our once upon a time? What did we learn about how the world works, about who we are in the world, about how we can relate to others? What did we learn? How did that get laid down, both the positives and the maladaptive negatives that we find in schemas? They're not, they are truths in that they happened once upon a time, but they're not truths in that they represent what's real about who we are, or how the world works. And, you know, what I'll often say to my narcissistic clients is, yeah, it's true. Your father said, you know, if you don't, if you're not the best, then you're a loser. I know he said those words. That's real. We can't change the fact that that happened, but we can reorganize the way it has been laid down in your memory to inform your world. You're still constantly in a battle to try to prove your father wrong, when in fact, he was always wrong even though he said it, right? But the schema is so powerful that it continues to live within you. And under you know conditions where there might be the feeling of a rival or a competitor, you're so activated, you go right into this over-controlling, overcompensating way of coping. How do you support someone who, I'm just so curious, like what, what kind of step-by-step -step process would you, would you do when you're working with somebody in this sort of schema therapy? Well, since I work primarily with this population and their partners and family members, um, although it's not really different with other emotional issues in the treatment room when we're doing schema therapy. I mean, it starts with assessment and it moves into treatment, although I'll say this, schema therapy, one of the most outstanding features of this model is that it has, I think, the most comprehensive, robust um, conceptual framework of almost any model I've ever seen and in, in that there is a very deep investigative thorough evaluation and look at one's early life experience we are connecting the dots from the minute someone sits down we are watching for patterns so within 15 minutes I might be looking at a client across the room and saying you know you have this part of you <laughs> And this is the modes, right? You have this part of you. It's not all of you, but there's a part of you that it seems to me that whenever I use the word emotion, you interrupt me, you sort of shift gears. I don't know if that's something that's uncomfortable for you or, or something else is happening, but it's like a part of you that continues to interrupt me whenever I seem to talk about emotions. Is there something about that that, have you noticed it too? You know, so we are... We're immediately identifying patterns and reactions and shifts as they're occurring. And we're building that into an understanding of where did you learn that? Who taught that to you? What might have been your earliest experience of that? 
And when you look at that now, how do you feel? So it's it's a model that's really built on the idea that we can adaptively reconnect with vulnerable parts of personality. We can use the beauty of this resource called the imagination and dive deep into imagery, images, you know, imagining the possibility of rescripting one's life and feeling what it would be like to get those needs met. In other words, to know that I'm okay, I'm good, I'm lovable, I'm free, I can express myself. Whatever it is that we've been taught that has caused us to feel like a hostage to this mm. system. So it's a lot of, it's hard, it's not a step-by-step formulaic process because it is kind of a reparenting model. And we know as parents, there's no absolute, you know, step one through step 10, but there is the assessment phase. So we really do want to put our hypothesis together. We want to be very thoughtful about how we conceptualize and connect the dots between what happened, how much it shows up now, under what conditions, how intense, what is the rate of recovery, how quickly can one recover and use their healthy adult mind to reframe what they're experiencing. And then we move into treatment, and treatment would include things like imagery work, emotion-focused practices, kind of gestalt-like techniques as well. Uh, It's a very integrative model, so we're very user-friendly, and and we welcome other uh, interventions from other schools of thought to try to meet the goals of meeting unmet needs. Yeah, this gets me really excited and uh, This conversation in general is just something I think is so important uh, to to educate people that there's a way to heal and there's a way to be supported, you know, through these integrative modalities. And coming back to the point where you were talking about learning how to be, learning how to see ourselves as lovable, I think that's such an important part of healing from narcissistic abuse. When we know we're lovable, we don't need to work so hard to prove anything or to work so hard to get someone to love us back. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's the, the language of the therapy is so much about, you know, offering, offering the kind of connection and the kind of realness. I mean, you'll never find a good schema therapist who is using kind of technical jargon. A good schema therapist positions themselves pretty immediately into um, a space of curiosity, um, knowing, empathy, and then making links, link after link. You know, it's, it's, it's that moment where you're sitting with someone you've come to know, and you see that they are in the middle of a crisis, maybe a crisis like you just described, where they're questioning their lovability again. And I can look over and say, when I look at you like this, I see that little girl And I see her at eight years old when she was so fearful of entering the schoolyard, so fearful that her friends would know what was happening at home and they would immediately reject her. Mm. She just didn't know who she was. Can you feel her right now inside of you as you're feeling this moment of question about your own lovability? Because I I feel like she's right there in the room with us again. Mm. And so from there, we can do a little bit of work to help this part right this experience which is just sort of coursing through the veins and the muscles and the tissue of the body right it's where memory goes and we try to help this part to feel a sense of security and and lovability and 
And then, you know, adding language to this adult in the room, which is you have nothing to prove. Right. You have one thing to prove. You're not not going to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. You'll make mistakes. You can own them. But you don't have to lambast yourself because you've made a mistake. You don't have to question your worth and your value. Right. That's something other people told you, but they were wrong. Mm. Yeah. Correcting those biased emotional experiences with, yeah, with a deep dive into the body, the emotional work, the imagination, uh, and then... um, you know, learning how to love ourselves. And mm-hmm. um, is it is it true that uh, codependence and narcissism attract one another? Yeah, you know, it kind of makes some sense, right? I mean, I, I like to say that no one is really immune to being captivated and even captured under the spell of a narcissist. They're very good right. at courtship. They're very good at getting what they want. Um, but it's also not uncommon to find that someone who we would use the term is more self-sacrificing or other directed is more likely to be uh, a really good fit, at least at first for the narcissist, because they, the narcissist gets to have what they want when they want it. They have someone who is very sacrificing of their own needs and thoughts and opinions and desires, um, often coming out of fear or guilt, but nonetheless, and so it's the perfect dysfunctional fit. Right. That makes sense. Yeah. If someone is, it's interesting, if someone is sensitive or has an inflated sense of ego, that doesn't necessarily make them a clinical narcissist. And the yeah. same with somebody who's self-sacrificing, it doesn't necessarily make them a codependent. It's, it's all right. on the spectrum. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. Wendy, this this book, your message, the work you do, I think is so, so important. I want to thank you so much for making the time to be here today. Well, for anybody who wants to connect with you and your work, what's the best way that they can connect with you? I think the best way is to go right to my website. There are links to my social media pages there. There's links for my book. There's podcasts. There's reading materials. There's a lot on the website, training programs, my online community for individuals who are loving, le- living, loving, leaving and living with the narcissist in their life. Right. Get all those L's out. Um, but it's all on my website, which is disarmingthenarcissist.com. Yeah, your website is extremely helpful. Lots of information and guidance on there. Wendy, thank you so much for making the time to be here today. Thank you, Elaine. I appreciate it. It's been great to be with you. So that's it for this episode. Thank you so much for listening, and I really hope you'll join us next time. Mindful Matters is written, hosted, and recorded by me, Elaine Clark. Special thanks to Karen Zorzi, our editor, Tawny Stoiber for the artwork, and our theme music by Bellwoods. If you can, please leave us a review. It helps others discover the show, and we really appreciate it. Let's keep these conversations going over at Blue Matter Project. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. I